Augmenters. I'm Julie. And I'm Jimmy. And we know that great leaders have great mentors. And today we are joined by Jason R. Waller, an executive coach to passionate humans. Jason provides leadership and performance training based on his lived experience of the United States Army and McKinsey Consulting. Today, you are going to learn how to connect better with others by keeping in mind that everybody has the same insecurity. Some people just have a different relationship with it. Also, you are going to learn some tips and tricks on how to unlock your potential through the practice of taking control of your inner monologue. This entire episode is themed consistency. Principle number six of the Augmenter's Eight Principles of Mentoring. Here we go. Jason R. Waller, we are so excited to have you on Augmenter's today. How are you doing? I am... Well, it's dangerous when you ask uh, somebody in my profession that question because I tend to give you real answers. I'm feeling excited, feeling kind of... I'm feeling happy. I'm noticing I'm feeling a bit swollen from some allergies, uh, but mostly excited and grateful to be here. Thanks for asking. How are you doing today? I am also so excited because it's Friday and it's spring and there's all kinds of great things happening. And I can relate to the excited. Jimmy, how are you feeling today? Well, I can relate to the allergies. So uh, my my, my sinus surgery is scheduled. I'm ready to rock and roll. That sounds intense. (laughs) We are so happy to have you on. And Jason, I am so excited to get to know you. One of the main questions we ask guests when they first come on to understand Mm. a little bit more about you is mentors are often identified by our guests as people who believed in them before they believed in themselves. Mm. So would you be able to share with us who that mentor was for you and what they saw in you before you saw in yourself? I love that distinction of believing in somebody before they be- you believe in yourself. And it kind of, I'm going to take a step back and then answer your question directly. The step back is, as I was thinking about this, I realized just how cross-cutting the idea of mentoring is. And we had a lot of conversation about how it's connected to leaders. And if you're a leader with formal responsibility, you also want to be mentoring from time to time the people that are underneath you or beside you. But even if you're in a partnership, a romantic relationship, there's mentoring happening. There's like a bit of the opportunity to believe in somebody more than they believe in themselves. I mean, outside of formal relationships, there's an opportunity. And that comes up partly because if you think about my arc of life in like kind of three horizons, I had the military for 15 years. I had consulting for nearly a decade. And now I do coaching work. And I can point to one individual in each of those paths that was really kind of formative and captures a definition of believing in me more than I believed in myself in that moment. And surprisingly, the, the person in the consulting arc is the person I'm now married to, my wife. Oh, and a lot of the work that she was... More. Oh, I was going to zoom in the military thing more directly. Answer you're, the question, okay. you're trying to, to do... We are here now. We're pulling you back. The, the one thing that I it's all going to come back to that idea of like believing in somebody more than they believe in themselves and, and kind of having, which is also the gift of coaching at some level, the opportunity to sit objectively outside of somebody's own context and say, ah, oh, like not only just kind of questioning what's about that, why are you doing that? And what ways is that serving you? But more specifically is just kind of lean into the relationship with them. Say, Hey, I, I see more in you than you see in maybe yourself. Sometimes I sometimes call this the distinction between calling somebody out and calling somebody forward. Like I'm calling you out, like like blaming you, like, why aren't you doing enough versus calling you forward? Like I, I see more in you. There's more possibility than you kind of are, are grabbing at the moment. And my, my wife, her name is Joe. She is, uh, she's like steeped with call forward energy. Like that's just a lot of her personality. She shows up and the teams she worked with benefits with from that, the, the individuals that she meets in passing benefit from that. But of course, somebody who's spending so much time with her benefits from that. And if I kind of focus on that time where I was thinking about just like being a better consultant or just kind of navigating the path of being in then McKinsey and company. One, it's, it's a very tricky place in a lot of ways, just because so many people are amazing and high achieving and high performing. And so I think a lot of Wait, people. Watch McKinsey? Those people are there. Really? They are. There are a few of them, if you okay. if you ever met them. But uh, and behind all that, though, from my experience, especially, is like this idea of like I don't know, if I'm not I'm not good enough. There's like an imposter idea that shows up with that. Just because so many people are pushing hard, 
and highly capable. And it takes a lot to kind of remind yourself that you're here for a reason, like, you know, somebody made a bet on you for a reason. And I think like five seconds after you get hired into a job like that, you lose sight of it. It just kind of like disappears into the noise and the fray. And so having somebody or somebody's to know you at a level of depth where they can point out things that you might know about yourself, but you're just kind of losing in that noise or know you at depth to point out things that you just don't know about yourself are really helpful to hear. I think the, the, the summariz- summarization of it is she would always tell me in so many words, like to back myself, to believe in myself a little more and not again from a place of calling me out, but from a place of calling me forward and say, Hey, you have more presence than you think you do. You have more like gravitas or more like pick fill in the blank. And this is mentorship informally because she had no kind of reporting structure to me. In fact, it was quite a different relationship. And it was, it's like kind of mentorship at the personal level. It's not around like, and sure she'd provide thought partnership around like we're both in the same job so she could help me build a slide or she could help me think about how to structure an initiative or something very practical. She could be the thought partner with me. But this is what I'm talking about, mentorship more at the personal level where it's just more around her ability to see me as Jason the human being, not necessarily Jason the consultant. And put some shoulder behind that and and kind of like a for a place of love and care which whether you're giving feedback or coaching or mentoring I think that's a very good distinction to make too which is that it's for the other person it's not for you and that's to the question of like leadership coming in mentoring that's where it kind of gets tricky because if you have a direct report and you want that direct report to perform well you have responsibility and accountability to that. But when you're really in a mentoring place, you need to take a step back from that and just say, what is this human being? What do they need? And how do I encourage them in their path of growth if maybe it's not even perfectly aligned with the path of growth for the business outcomes? And then reconciling that because that's tricky. So all that to say is delightfully messy and it can come in all, in all sorts of uh, shapes and forms, including from a spouse or a friend, I believe. I want to ask so bad, Jason, about like, okay, so at McKinsey, month one, what was the training on build a slide and structure an initiative? Because <laughs> that's what like every student I work with is like, wait, if I want to go go consulting, what am I going to be doing? And I'm just going to tell them now you're going to build slides and structure initiatives. I love it. Yeah, I think there is a, it's a lot of on the job training. And so mentorship happens formally and informally training happens formally and informally. But I think the thing that separates really compelling consultants in a, in a job like that is what they're doing, not in terms of what they're doing, but like who they are and showing up and how they're relating to the world around them, how they're relating to the pressures. And that world is really hard to navigate on your own, which is why I strongly advocate for as many sources of support as you can, whether those are very formal, like a therapist or very informal, like friendship and everything in between, like coaching and mentoring and sponsorship, I guess is another word that comes to mind. How have you seen mentoring show up with clients? I've heard this anecdotally quite a bit, but, you know, have there been clients that have also seen something in you before or in colleagues of yours where, you know, they were really told and called forward to stand up on a project? Hmm. Context, because this goes back to the interplay of like being a leader and having a mentoring responsibility, but also being the benefit benefactor, or like the kind of having the benefit of being mentored yourself, because it's, it's always going to be an ecosystem. There's always going to be somebody who either because they blaze a trail ahead of you, you really value their perspective or somebody who maybe has a perspective outside of your context that's different and objective and interesting. And to your point, there are people that are you're, you're working with that are maybe structurally underneath you or peers. You can still find an opportunity to be mentored by them in whether it's a formal or informal way. And so when I think about like how mentoring shows up in that context, now, as I said, I'm not quite answering the question that you asked, but I like the, the question that I heard better. <laughs> so we can go back to that after this. What was the question you heard? The question I heard is just how does mentoring show up in, in, in leadership, especially with clients? And I'm thinking clients, my coaching clients, because I have the I have the real I don't know, the blessing is the word I think that comes to mind. Like I, I feel really blessed to be in the posi- position that I am to be able to bear witness to like people's growth and change and leadership responsibilities, especially because a lot of my clients are CEOs in a startup. Like the world that they had a year ago is so different from the world they have now and the world a year from now is just so much going to change as well. And so they're always wrestling with kind of catching up to the version of leadership that they need to be in the kind of chapter of, of whether it's fundraising or just the startup's life cycle or the size of the customer base, whatever it is that is there. And back to that, it's not just what you do, but who you are when you show up. A lot of that becomes more important as you think you grow in seniority, as you have a team of four Great, that's important as a team of 40. That's super important. As you have a team of 400, that's maybe the most important thing is like who you are as a leader and how you show up. When we think about 
what makes a good leader at scale at that level. It's again, not what they're doing. They've, they've probably left behind the, I, I know how to build a product. I know how to you know target a customer and do sales. And now it's much more around how do I get the best out of the amazing people that I've chosen to hire? How do I get the best out of this board that's supporting me? How do I get the best out of the relationships outside and inside of the company? And when it comes to relationships, when it comes to who you are showing up, when it comes to this kind of very abstract but important idea of leadership, a lot of things come then back to the the kind of connective tissue around coaching or mentoring that supports that. And so I'm not saying anything that's completely new yet, but I think what is often missed is that people know this up here. They kind of have a sense of, yeah, mentoring is important. Yeah, coaching my people is important. And then they get trapped in like, let me do this stuff. Let me kind of fiddle with the details. And it takes a lot of effort to step back and realize that, you know, if I can mentor somebody in a really compelling way to help them grow in a way that's really meaningful, then I've scaled that impact way more than I could if I just kind of grabbed the spreadsheet away from them. And mentoring, it's not about just kind of grabbing spreadsheets. It's about like, you know, asking powerful questions of what is important for this about you? Like, where do you want to be in the next year? Are you on this journey with us? Like, how can we support you and grow in this way? And it comes with peers, with reports, with board members, all the above. It's a big ecosystem. I get like my like stomach churns as you talk about four people and then 40 people and then 400 people. And it's terrifying. It's terrifying, I think, yeah. as a leader. And it's so exciting, but it's like your dream suddenly starts coming true. And then all of a sudden you are thrust into this totally different world than you ever expected. I loved how you talked a bit about imposter syndrome because we know that comes up and it's kind of a fraught phrase and people have a lot of opinions about it. But thinking about it from the aspect of consultant in a large you know, organization where you've been hired, all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, this organization is so amazing. Right. How am I here? And then also I imagine imposter syndrome as you go from four to 40 to 400. Like what mm. are some ways that mentoring can support around imposter syndrome? I think two things come to mind and I'm going to, I'm going to straddle the world. I'm happy to talk also about the distinction because I've read your article about coaching versus mentoring and it can be so complicated sometimes. And these ideas of where we put like which ideas and which verbs and which buckets but in general, I think the kind of umbrella idea is supporting people at a more personal level or supporting people outside of like the, the dotted line or solid line reporting structure and supporting people at a more like level of depth and change, which when we're thinking about this whole very complicated idea of imposter syndrome, that is a very personal issue. That's my fingerprint specific depth to just who Jason is when it comes to like my imposter and how that shows up. And it's different than Julie's, different than Jimmy's, different than like John's, different than anybody's when it kind of shows up and how it shows up and what kind of fuels the fire that's underneath that. So the two things that I think about is one, practice, and two, just the idea of acceptance. And why, why I paint this out is because I think there's a way that you get to realize practice and acceptance from maybe more of a coaching place. When I say practice, what I what I think I mean is that, you know, it's there's there's often no like real like silver bullet or epiphany that's standing between you and like feeling confident or if not feeling like an imposter. Usually it's a lot of hard work that comes on the back end of a lot of other hard work that's kind of preceded you in the decades before that's kind of led to whatever mindset is there. And again, it can be different from person to person. So I'll only speak about me. I have a, I wrestle with perfectionism. And when I, when I can't get to the 99% like perfect solution, that's when the imposter shows up and surprise, surprise, the imposter shows up a bunch because getting to perfection is a very hard, if not impossible thing, kind of by definition. And, and so it's kind of boring when you get there. Yeah. yeah it's I like, yeah, you really it's not that it. interesting. No. Right. Yeah. And the adage is, and you, you get better at what you practice, but at a human level, like for me, like for years, I spent a lot of time practicing, like seeing the wrong, like seeing the seeing the stuff that's missing. And I became an expert because of how much I practiced that at seeing what's missing and catastrophizing a situation. I'm guessing you're not talking about like photo hunt, the bar game, seeing what's missing. Can you talk no. about it specifically? Yeah. Like, um, and so let's talk about it from like the context, like negative self-talk, for instance, like that's a pattern, that's a habit. And that's something that even though it's like, even though it's, it feels like a, not something you're practicing in the traditional sense, like by repetition, you are practicing that. Every day you kind of wake up and say like, you know, this is, this sucks. This is terrible. Like what's going to happen next? It's going to like, when's the other shoe going to drop? Every morning you wake up and practice that, you're also getting better at the skill behind that of just seeing the worst in the situation. Or every time I, I wake up and I do that, I, I, I really kind of develop my skill as a perfectionist. Like unconsciously, I am training my ass off to become a perfectionist. And 
that message there is that one, those things don't change overnight. Um, partly because you have to kind of put, pick something different to practice. If negative self-talk is the thing I'm practicing, then I might need to start practicing seeing a better reality or seeing like the positive situation or practice gratitude or something that's unfamiliar. But just doing that for a day is not going to make a, a huge difference. It's doing that daily that makes a huge difference because I've spent three decades practicing one way and it's not just going to change all the way overnight. My, my, my neural pathway is really strongly built to kind of go toward that mm. pattern that I have it in my default. And so when you talk about imposter syndrome, so much of this is realizing that there's a bit of grace in that as a practice. Like you're not going to get over it in just like with a few mantras in the morning. You're going to get over it by making a daily Instagram. commitment to see the world in a different way over time. And then that realization can be fueled by mentoring because mentoring has the opportunity to kind of remind you of that, especially if you say to your mentor, this is something I'm trying to do more of. Can you help support me? Can you help keep me accountable? Where do you see me kind of going back and falling into my old ways? Where do you see perfectionism showing up in like the last board conversation that I have? I'm really trying to change this mindset and, and kind of let go of the imposter syndrome in a, or the imposter in a compassionate way. And a mentor, somebody who's there for you uh, or with you, maybe even better, can be supporting that as that kind of outside objective party as saying, hey, Back to that, what you said, I believe in you more than you believe. You can do this. You can keep pushing forward on that. And they can be supporting the practice, the healthy practice you're trying to change or trying to make. So Jason, it all comes down to practice I, in some ways. Yeah, I love this so, so much. Because then it's almost just like really identify. Because the brain is just the most powerful. It is so powerful. And I don't think people have any sense of just how powerful your thoughts are in terms of the outcome of your actions. But when you really call yourself out... Like I definitely feel for myself as a leader, I had quite a bit of time where I had the same narrative over and over this thing that I heard, like it, it made no sense. Like when I actually said it out loud, it made no sense. Um, but I did say it out loud and I did talk to people about it and I said it over and over again and I was able to change my thinking around it, but then also get people to help me, like remind me that what I was telling myself wasn't true. And now over time, I've mostly let go of it, but it took a long time. It took a while. So I think it sounds like, like, do you see really vulnerability or being able to, you know, once you've kind of identified that, like keep calling it out and asking people for help? My opinion is that there is a prerequisite here of the personal and the kind of practical. The practical being like you have to figure out how to understand this at some level. You have to realize, I think a lot of people, and this is me projecting a bit too, they walk around feeling the imposter and they're just like, that's, that's, I don't like it. And that's just like the way it is. That's kind of part of my identity. It's part of my, who I am. And I think realizing that the imposter feeling is a result of some practice that you're having in your life, some way you're training yourself on a daily basis. And it's not the thing you're trying to solve the imposter necessarily. It's actually the stuff a little bit downstream or upstream of that to say, oh, there's this habit, there's this pattern, there's this reality that I'm seeing or this belief I have about the world or about myself. And if I can nudge that over time, then the imposter thing goes away. But I think a lot of people waste a lot of calories trying to focus on how do I you know, breathe the imposter away, mantra the imposter away, like kind of shame the imposter away, whatever you want to call it. So, and so, so Jason, sorry, but like, how do you, how do you then do that recognizing? How do you do that nudging? Like, do you give people a mental model, like, you know, go out and hug your imposter? Like, is there something that you repeat to try to make it more tangible? So it, like, you know, once it's acknowledged, it can be, you know, adjusted? Yeah, there are a bunch of like practical things, but I think the, so I'll, I'll give you some of my favorite things that kind of show up more often than not. But sitting behind that is like the idea of like practice being more important than content. Said differently, when somebody comes to me as a kind of coaching client, very rarely is the thing they need to do is like read that one more book or read that one more like HBS article. <laughs> like, wait, you, wait, you're telling me that the 57th book I read isn't going to solve it for me? <laughs> Probably, probably not in the way that you're hoping for, uh, given 51 through 56. But, and that's not to say content isn't helpful and it can't scaffold some beautiful kind of discussions and realizations. But more often than not, they need practice or a process to support the content that they already have. And that's a process of usually discovery and self-awareness, which is hard to do you know, asynchronously with a book or a podcast. And that's where mentoring and coaching comes in because... If somebody has either gone on that journey for themselves, mentoring, or if they've they've kind of recognized the process of facilitating discovery for somebody else in that way, coaching, then they can help kind of call that person forward to that language earlier and say, hey, 
what is it about this kind of situation that's making you feel anxious or losing your confidence? How does the imposter show up? What does she look like when she does? And getting them to kind of realize and trace the breadcrumbs back into the forest to say, okay, this is actually coming from this story that I've been holding on to for decades. This is coming back to this pattern that I do every day without fail. And getting to that level of realization is the important part. It could look a million different ways. But to answer your question also about kind of how typically shows up. One of my favorite things to do is to personify the imposter to say, okay, who is this person? Describe them. What do they look like? What are their habits and features? Just because it's a little easier to like look at something and make it like from mind's eye, make it objective. And it's like, ah, oh, it's not Jason. It's like, it's Dave or it's like Jason, the critic. And it's like Jason, the critic or Dave looks like this. And I can have a conversation or relationship with them in my mind. That's different than just feeling like this is a part of my, my own persona hijacking me. It's not really true that it's a different part of me, but like if I can think about it that way, that's a helpful entry point for discovery, which is practice. When you ask that question to your clients about personify the imposter, how often do they describe themselves? 100% of the time, because it is themselves. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. But, but I get your point. I get, the spirit of the question is like, does it actually... But, Yes, because I think I think if I were and uh, you can think about it for yourselves too in any moment now, like if you just thought about how do I show up when I am from a place of like fear, when I'm hijacked by wanting to perform, when I am fill in the blank, what does that version of myself look like? What are the mannerisms? How do they hold their body? Like for me, my shoulders go up, my jaw tightens a little bit. And you can contrast that with like, what's this version of yourself when you are in flow, when you feel safe, when you feel kind of reassured and loved by the people around you? And how does that body kind of hold itself and what kind of thoughts come through that? And then you get more creative if you want to, like maybe the person from, you know, the early example has a different way of like uh, carrying themselves, different clothes they wear. Or maybe it becomes more of like a metaphor, like there is not Jason, the critic, but there is like, ah, it's the it's this like Wolverine inside of me, that's like an animal or something making it up. Right. That's not my actual thing. But it doesn't matter at the end of the day, because all you're doing is you're kind of saying, what are the characteristics of this thing that I experience, And how do I kind of just find a nice place to organize that, whether it's a metaphor or an animal or a different persona of myself, such that I can kind of just pull it out and look at it a bit more compassionately and objectively. Uh, because if I look at it objectively, then I realize that it's kind of a result. My imposter is a result of this process, not the, the imposter itself. If I hold it compassionately, because I can do that when I'm doing it in, in this form, then I have a chance of changing it versus kind of beating myself into submission, which is another probably the point too that I was going to make the second trap around acceptance. But personas is one way, or like metaphors is one way. Wait, I have one. Can I share it? Yes. <laughs> so uh, you both are probably a bit young for this, but my uh, imposter syndrome. So when I was growing up, the show Dynasty, the first Dynasty was very popular. And there was Crystal Carrington. I don't know if either of you had can, can conjure up Linda Evans in your mind of Crystal Carrington, but she was this, you know, she wore these power suits with like the shoulder pads and she had this perfect hair. I don't, I, she was in business of some kind. I don't know. But to me, mm. like that was the version of what a businesswoman looked like. Like if I was going to be a successful businesswoman, I had to have my hair absolutely done perfectly. I had to have perfect shoulder pads. I had to look completely perfect and buttoned up for any situation. And you don't know me well, Jason, but Jimmy knows me very well. And I am not very buttoned up and I don't always look put together and I'm always a bit messy. And it took me a really long time to get over like that mm. vision of how a successful businesswoman looked. And if I didn't look like that, I wasn't going to be that. So I've had the opportunity over the last years of stepping into leadership of being very clear that like, I can be a really authentic leader. I can be my own leader. And I look ridiculous in a suit with shoulder pads and my hair perfectly done. And that's not, but that was that old story. And it took me time. And actually it really did take me mentors, um, having other businesswomen who were brilliant and messy and wonderful and vulnerable to say like, well, that is one version, but that's not the version that's authentic to you. So I really mm. relate to what you're saying. And I think having those mentors who are able to sort of, that, that I was able to share that story, which is kind of feels a bit bonkers, but I was able to kind of get help in getting over it too. So I really appreciate that kind of framework that I think yeah. can help our listeners to kind of really identify it and, and think about it. Yeah, I found my, I find myself wanting to ask a ton of follow-up questions about that and like get into the <laughs> We can have a session later. <laughs> you made an interesting point in like or at least I heard something that I think is quite insightful about this idea of mentoring and the connection with this like more personal work that somebody might be doing. 
might be doing, which is that the role of, for me as a coach, especially like a more human centric coach is going to be like discovering that process, playing with personas, doing all the kind of fun, creative stuff to get this relationship of objectivity and compassion that we talked about. And again, we're just kind of speaking in the context, like imposter syndrome is one idea. But where mentoring is really valuable, you mentioned it just now, is like you get a chance to see other people who are navigating in a different way. Other people who maybe you admire for their their lack of imposter or their confidence on the other side of that. And usually, by the way, it's, it's people that once you get close enough to, and this is, again, me making my own stories from my own experience, but usually in my experience, it's realizing that they have just as much insecurity as you do. They just developed over time a different relationship with it. And that's about the kind of acceptance piece that kind of connects this idea or the compassion piece that connects it. Because they might still, you might respect the hell out of them in terms of how they show up in a meeting. And you might realize they are just as nervous as you going into that meeting. And then it opens that kind of aha. It's not about getting rid of the nervousness. It's about how do I navigate with it in a different way? Or how do I kind of learn from what they're doing and take a piece of inspiration from how they do it? And that's the real value of mentoring too, is because you get a chance to see other people and share vulnerability with each other and then understand how they operate in a way that might be really, really helpful and supportive for you. Well, that's kind of a follow-up question I had. I know you want to talk a little about acceptance and I want to get to that, but as a mentor, when you see, you know, I as there are folks that I mentor, I see their imposter syndrome. I see, and for some it is perfectionism. I see it, you know, dissipate. I see it come back. Like, are there ways that you recommend mentors when they see this struggle coming up in people that they mentor, how they can approach it with them? Yes. And I think one thing that I go back to is so in classic form, I'm going to answer a question that's not quite so said, and I'm going to answer the question directly. But the, <laughs> the thing that helps, I think, uh, in a lot of ways, whether it's coaching or mentoring, let's talk about mentoring more specifically. If you have a relationship with somebody, and let's say it's a little more formal, and this person's not in your reporting structure, but you say, hey, I'd love to have you as a mentor, or like some words to that effect, and you've developed this, like, yeah, we're going to meet every month or something. It doesn't have to look this way. It can look a lot of, it can look more organic. Let's just pretend that's the world that we're in. There's a powerful opportunity that I don't think a lot of people do, and this is true of meetings and coaching, but like, let's again talk about mentoring to say, like, let's build a little bit of a charter for what we're here and how we're going to be here in a way that's helpful for you. So if we have this commitment that mentoring is important, then let's get a sense of what would you love to get out of this? Let's get a sense of how we're going to communicate. Let's get a sense of like, are we going to be like real and honest with each other? Let's get a sense of like what kind of norms we can agree to as this kind of now two-person team meeting for an hour every month to help that two-person team operate really effectively. And if you have like an agreement within that of like, you know, radical vulnerabilities, like we're just going to kind of bear it all and like learn about each other, then almost that gives you the springboard to say, hey, I want to call something out that I'm noticing. We're just kind of, I'm, I'm seeing a pattern in you. And it's like letting them kind of, again, holding it out to them more objectively. It's just like an experience that I'm noticing. And you have almost like permission or license to do that because of the agreement that you've made around how the relationship is supposed to be. Said differently, if you don't have that kind of explicit kind of idea around it, that kind of social contracting, you might just have to kind of lean on your gut to say, is this going to be jarring for this person? Are they going to be in a place where they're open to this kind of feedback? And you might still decide to do it, but there's a lovely opportunity to remove friction from the process if you just set some agreements up front, even if it's gently set. And then in that moment, whether you're following your intuition or not, just letting them know your experience, your observation. I think I think there's there's definitely value in mentoring where you say, you I believe you should do this, or why don't you go left instead of right? But I think there's even more value in mentoring because again, think about the relationship. This is an opportunity for somebody to see another human being who's taken a different path or who's farther along in the path or who's just somewhere else altogether and kind of having that opportunity to learn from them through osmosis in an indirect way. And so the number one best thing you can do as a mentor is to just be real and share what's happening for you. And that might be noticing that there is like this, this imposter thing here and just say, hey, I wanted to share about my own journey with this. Can I share with you? I've noticed a pattern and I just want to share what's happening for me. And that's still on your side of the fence, but you're kind of doing it in, in a way of uh, recognizing a need that's there. Or you might share your experience to say, I see these things happen. It's a pattern or a story that I make up. And I'm not trying to be right or wrong about it. I'm just noticing it. And I'm going to give you some observations. Do with them what you will. Mm. And again, you're living on your side of the fence because you're only talking about your own stories, your own feelings, your own thoughts. It's from observation on their side. But you're staying really in your own experience because that's the thing that's going to be most serving to them. If Julie or Jimmy can show up and like 
in a really present and the best way of, of like the, the best version of themselves that's going to own their own, like what's happening for me? What am I noticing in you? And what am I wanting for you? That's going to be the most powerful way, I think, to have real genuine and impactful mentoring, even beyond the practical, like here's how you fill out a spreadsheet stuff. Does that land? What do you think about that? I don't that? ever want to mentor or t- teach me about spreadsheets. That sounds really miserable. I really love the idea because as you've sort of shared across the spectrum from friends to coaches, boss, you know, mentors are somewhere sort of in the in-between, right? They're not necessarily like, it's not a contractual relationship generally. It's not a paid opportunity, of course. But how do you really just share your own experience, which I think is different, of course, than coaching, because generally you're, I mean, I don't know if you are, but generally coaches aren't there to share their own experience. They're there to really work Mm -hmm. with the client and friends might just be like, oh yeah, that sucks. This sucks for me too. And, you know, kind of dig into it. But I think a mentor has a chance to then really reflect their own experience and their own vulnerabilities and then share a bit more about what they observe, but just making it very much about them. And a beautiful thing in my experience happens when you do that, when you just kind of stay on your side of the fence as much as you can is that the other person will feel invited to reach over and ask you for something or ask you for your input on it. And then you're offering it based on their request. You're opting into that, not shoving it kind of down. And the spirit of then good mentoring is less about like, how do I add value or, or make this person better? And more just like, how do I show up and, and see what's there for them? And if I can be myself and make myself available to them, which is really the I think it's the first tenet of mentoring. If I had to, if I had to name one, mm-hmm. just show up and be available. And then the rest will happen. As the more you can do that, the more the rest will happen organically and, and with precision. That's the need for them. Jason, if I could kind of uh, maybe turn our conversation slightly to your time in the military and relationships there, yeah, this is yeah. going to be because you are great at interpreting my questions. I'm just going to ask two and let you hear one <laughs> and tell me what comes back. So first of all, and this is both really related to how people talk. I assume, you know, I I know a lot of your clients are tech in Silicon Valley and, you know, you're Mm -hmm. helping leaders there as their companies are quickly growing. Though leaders in the military might not have personnel or reporting structures that are quickly growing, they may be climbing up that org chart and therefore having more people underneath them. But how does it differ when people take on more responsibility in the business world now versus when they are literally in the field under fire and have physical threats at the same time occurring to them. And my second question is, how do you feel about people using military terms for business? I think I'll just answer both questions very directly if I can. And if I can, is more just like testing my capable of doing that, answering a question directly. Uh, <laughs> practice. The... If you keep practicing it, it will occur. <laughs> exactly. You get better at what you practice skills, beliefs, habits, stories, all the above. So how is it different from the military and like, say, the tech world? One is you're right. There is a bit more of like a a ambiguity to the tech world growing, like from the four to 40 to 400. And so everything at that frontier of growth is uncharted. Not true in the military. They're steeped in doctrine of like, once you get to 40 people, this is how you manage to do the systems and tools you have. Once you get to 400 people, this is the system and the tools you have. And this is what a good leader looks like and a bad leader looks like. And it's all kind of written down somewhere. So you have, it's like you have the answers to the test ahead of time. Whether you're capable of doing it is different, but like you have at least some level of trying to like, let's thread the needle on, on what at least good enough looks like so people can rally around that through doctrine. In the startup world, in the startup land, especially tech world, that's all being invented as it goes along, which is great because sometimes what it, what one team, team needs at 40 is different than what another team needs at 40. And like just saying that template of like what would work in the military at 40 might only work one times out of 10 for like what kind of organization or culture you're trying to put that on top of. And then secondly, there's, there is a lot more of a clear, and this is both uh, an observation and invitation. There's an observation. There's a very clear so what with the military kind of focus. They usually have a very clearly defined like purpose for being there personally, but also like a very clearly defined mission. And then your mission cascades down from that. And you always know exactly like what's expected and where you're headed and why. And that's not always as clear as you're pivoting left and right in a startup world and trying to figure out not only at an organization level, what are we here to do, but also me, junior engineer, what the hell am I here for? And the invitation in that too, is that there's a little bit of that spirit that you can always try to think of as a leader. How do I get more clarity into like our mission? What are we here to do? Not from like a practical, like, you know, we serve customers in this area, but like, oh, let's get more inspiration. Like we're here to solve this problem in the world. We are here to change this type of customer's life for the better. And that can trickle down into the organization and trickle down into the junior engineer knowing why she's there in the first place. And I think 
for better or worse, the military will have a very rigid view, which is not supportive of the startup world. But there's an element of that, which is like once you get some clarity of like where you're headed, that is helpful to that. And so those are the two things that come to mind. What pops up in your mind as I share that, though? So how about military terms in business? Like we really yeah. got to attack them. We're, we're, we're under fire from this client. I stylistically, I don't like the military terms. And it's not because it's like, oh, those are my terms, like get them back. I think it's because back to this like idea of the rigid and very specific focus of the military is not as what's going to be the focus of the startup. You usually, so this is me making some assumptions here, but you usually get these military terms into organizations through cross-pollination or direct input from people that were in the military that joined the organizations. They're just using their own terms. And then like you might have some trading around from clients who just like see that happening and it becomes part of like the normal business landscape. But there's also some consideration to make around just like what is, and I, I realize now a distinction, it's not just military terms like jargon in general that I'm kind of against. And if you can say, let's go attack this sector or this kind of client, I would much rather prefer you say like specifically what you're trying to do than the general energy of like, oh, let's go forward in this in this in this area. And there is a component of, of like what is also going to be friendly to everybody in the organization and saying like attacking a client or even things like bullet points might not feel friendly to people in an organization. Um, and I think you have to realize that the military is a different world and the startup land is a different world and what works here is not going to work here. And jargon is the easiest thing to just kind of say, let's, let's not bring in one unhelpful and two maybe confrontational jargon. And three, develop our own language for how we're going to work, because that's going to be way more powerful as you scale organization. Say, ah, like we are, like our culture is green, like as a kind of energy. And that like, that means more to the people in the organization than saying like, you know, we have to, we have to flank our objective here, or we have to kind of like, I don't know, what other military jargon might pop out, right? Like, I are you heard of flanking are you your objective. But I love that actually, um, Lorna Davis, who was, I think, episode six of ours, Jimmy, like very, very long time ago, was exactly one of the mentors I was talking about um, related to leadership. And she uh, recently, well, not recently, I guess it was a couple of years ago, did a phenomenal TED Talk and really talked about the use of military terms in business. And you start to just really hear it. I've never tried to attack a client. Please have that noted. But <laughs> I've wrestled into the ground. No. <laughs> Yeah. But, but we always, we definitely like pull the trigger and we're under the gun and we all, all right. of a sudden we're like, wow, we're using a lot of these kind of terms and mm. how many, even like, you know, chief executive officer, like that's so, that's such a military term. It's so ingrained in our language. I think it's a great opportunity to kind of listen for that and see like to your point, Jason, we don't have to say that. Yeah, We can come up with other words. Yeah. And I probably stopped just short of making any moral judgment on it, but it is confrontational. And I think there's an idea of like, what's going to be friendly for everybody in the organization. But it's just back to that idea of like, it's not so precise. Like we kind of get a bit of shorthand for like, like what it's like to be in your foxhole. But all that is, is like trying to say something really important and diluting it down to a little bit of a like a, a cliche. And what you're really trying to say, if you could be really honest and vulnerable with yourself is like, hey, are you willing to support me in the way that I need supported right now? And people are afraid to have that level of conversation. So they throw jargon at it or they throw questions at it or they be imprecise with it or they be indirect or passive aggressive or sarcastic or make jokes or all these beautiful tools that help people not be real in the moment. And so I think in general, I'm in favor of getting rid of jargon, whether it's military or otherwise, just to open up the other side of that conversation, which is more direct, candid, and authentic. I love it. That was Actually, you gave me a couple of goosebumps there with just how uh, clear you were in uh, the importance of showing up for other people by not obfuscating, which is, you know, what I've summarized what you just said and how I always make jokes to try to cover up things such as I just really want to say like bullet points, compare and contrast. Like that's how we're going to have to start our next workshop, Julie. Just that's it. <laughs> I had never thought of it, bullet points. Yeah. I, it was, I, I hadn't even made that connection. Yeah, yeah uh, that was actually really quite beautiful, Jason. And I appreciate you. you said that. We are getting to the end of our program and we have something that we do often. Unfortunately, they are bulleted. I have four questions for you in a very brief rapid fire, again, uh, in a very <laughs> brief immediate brain association process that we would like. Cool. You could be objective or approach it with compassion. It's up to you. But I'm going to ask you about four different words and uh, whatever comes to mind. Uh, we will not do a Rorschach text afterwards. They're words we've already talked about. So the first word I'll say is mentor. 
what comes to mind? Love for some reason. Yeah, we, we've never had that response. This is the second week in a row we've had a very different response we've ever had. Last week, specifically the first name of a very impactful person was used in the term mentor. And I think you just kind of completed that sentence for that individual. Mm, um, cool. So no, definitely yeah. covered in goosebumps, yeah. Uh, I wouldn't recommend that, running around talking about love in a typical corporate environment, but I get a bit of a I get a bit of license to be a bit edgy. So crazy. One, <laughs> mentee, what comes to mind? Open. Nope. There's an openness. You've teed up my third word, which is sponsor. This is a terrible example. I heard once that there's a difference between like chicken sponsors and pig sponsors. Have you heard of this before? <gasps> no. It's like the idea that, like, I don't know. I don't like this idea. As much as, like, you want to be cautious of the military stuff, like, you also want to be respectful that not everybody eats meat. But uh, it's like the chicken is, like, it lays the egg. It's like, great, I'll have the uh, the egg. Thank you very much. And the chicken has no really kind of, like, uh, no skin in the game. It's just like, cool. No, but the pig actually has to kind of, if you want to eat the pig, yeah, the pig's going to be there with you. And it's a bit of a morbid idea, but like there's this idea that like there's uh, there's a a what's the word that I want to look for here? There's a mutuality in sponsorship. It's not just being there to to be supporting this person, but is there because not only do I believe in them, but I think I'm my team's gonna be better once I sponsor them, and I want them in my team. So it's like I get to provide them opportunities, but they get to provide me opportunities too, and uh, not in a super transactional way, but a way that there's skin in the game. For both of us and we get to grow together and there's a little bit of like me leaning into the relationship and helping them grow which is not there if i'm just kind of like you know off to the side in the chicken mode like tossing eggs i don't know where i heard it I never said it. i'm like i don't actually like that metaphor anymore I'm, but anyway I'm thinking about lunch but i cannot wait to have um a longer conversation <laughs> about that that's awesome i hope it's not a chicken salad sandwich uh okay I, so i i heard invest along with mutuality, kind of, of what you said about sponsor. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. Cool. And our, the last word I have for you is coach. What comes to mind? Inquiry. Then I must ask uh, for our listeners, what is the one question this week that got the most powerful answer? Mm. <sighs> Who would you be if you didn't have to do that? And that was speaking to a pattern that had been held as something that was serving them, but it's almost like with toxicity. And there was a realization that if you let go of that, that even though you give up something, you gain a lot more. And the stuff you gain probably replaces the thing that you're afraid of losing. So who would you be? Who would you be? Yeah. Wow. Jason, I bet you are a phenomenal coach. I already like feel like I learned so much just in this conversation with you. So thank you you so much for this. I feel like this was a really powerful conversation and I really got a lot out of it. Mm. Um, Just thinking both about things for me to think about, but then also really showing up for mentees and ways to be able to um, approach them that way. So this has been a total pleasure. Jason, is there any last thing that you wanted to say? I have a big experience of just gratitude for uh, I'm noticing that I, I didn't ask as many questions as I usually would, which means you guys are both really good at asking questions. And I feel grateful for being a part of the conversation. So thank you very much. We'll take it. Compliments on a Friday. My man. Thank exactly. you. Sending you off to the weekend with good vibes. Great. Honestly, Jason, yeah. thank you so much. This was wonderful. Julie, we learned about practice and acceptance. How do you feel about your negative self-talk? Well, I did really appreciate that Jason brought to us the idea that it actually has like, it can be like personified. It could be an actual person. It could be like an actual vision of something, which of course I shared um, from my past traumatizing ABC uh, Friday evening drama of I, I, Dynasty. I your, your negative self-talk is quite a vision. Striking, really. I feel like I needed to talk like her. I don't know. It like really stuck with me. So yeah, I don't know. Would you, do you have like a vision of yourself talk? No, but I like the physical aspect of attempting to how to hug your imposter syndrome and to wrap your arms around it 
literally to help you feel comfortable with it and practice the acceptance of your imposter syndrome. I kind of get that. I'm sort of envisioning like a car wash guy, like the, you know, wonky man outside the car wash with the like flailing arms that I'm doing a bad job of exemplifying. Um, not the guy with the towels, the guy that helps, <laughs> you know, with the air puffer that like is part of the marketing, not the science. The marketing, exactly. The car wash mm -hmm. marketing. That could be like an interesting kind of, uh, yeah, hugging the imposter syndrome. I did like how Jason reminded us that everybody has these insecurities. I think it is so easy to look at people in any situation where you feel insecurities to feel like those people must, you know, have it all together. They must know exactly what's going on. But everybody feels like that. It's a really powerful way to self-motivate when times are hard, when you realize that, at least for me, when you realize that you're not special, but you're special when you can talk positively to yourself because nobody else can. There's a great line from a couple different motivators. I'll stick with Kobe Bryant and basketball where Kobe would say, I loved feeling tired on the court because I knew that the guy guarding me felt as tired or more. And that meant I was about to win. Oh my God. I have never heard that. I have never heard that. So remembering like where you are inside yourself, but thinking about the person next to you and how they must be feeling and that you don't always exactly know, which I also think was kind of cool. Cause I think sometimes we assume we know how other people are thinking and how other people are feeling. Although I guess in that particular situation, like he's pretty sure the guy's pretty tired. Yep. If you've put in the work, then you know where you're at relative to others. And I think What's really nice about this view of imposter syndrome is that if you put in the practice, the repeated action of hugging your imposter syndrome, you then actually know where you're at. So if you're feeling weird and a little uncomfortable walking out about to be on a panel to talk in front of a lot of people or about to go into a job interview and there's three other people sitting there about to go in as well, hey, you've already put in the work. If you're feeling it, they are too and probably worse. And that's not an aggressive thing. That should be a thing to boo you and say, hey, I'm ready for this. And you just give it a hug. So you're saying I'm supposed to hug Linda Evans of Dynasty fame in my head. Check the show notes. Those shoulder pads are memorable. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, that's a great That's a great way. So we talked a little bit about your inner monologue is your practice. And that's like a good mantra maybe that we got from this interview. Can you like explain to me what that means to you? So by repeating something, you are getting better at it. There's another you know, uh, great term about perfect practice makes perfect. So you can't go around practicing something not full speed or not fully because then you're not actually practicing what you're intending to do. So I think the mantra here of making sure you are continuing to look at yourself objectively and not critically and also continue to giving yourself compassion with your actions and your own self-talk, if you practice that mantra in moments that are calmer, in moments where you're by yourself, in moments where you have a bit more control of the situation beyond yourself. It then means when you don't have control of the situation beyond yourself, you will be prepared to more quickly, more readily, less painfully go through objectively looking at how you are feeling, any negative emotions you have about yourself, and then giving yourself compassion and preparing to move forward. And when you get good at it, just like Ron Gutman about smiling. When you get good at this, you practice your mantra and you're in a tough situation. You start feeling like you're going to have a cold sweat in your palms and boom, you say, okay, I know what's going on. I'm going to hug these invisible shoulder pads in front of me. It's okay. You're going to be able to do this. These things are hard. Everybody else feeling a little nervous too. Let's get it. Oh my God. I love that. I love that. That is that totally makes sense. And just really like embracing that for yourself. I had a situation actually the day of our interview earlier in the day of a new colleague, a new, very young colleague, very new in our organization and hearing her talk a bit about that imposter syndrome or those feelings. And then me being able to share how I also feel that all the time. And um, mm -hmm. yeah, then Likewise. you're like, oh yeah, we all feel that. Like we absolutely all feel that. And yeah, just get in, give it a hug. Hugs are the best. Just go give it a hug. And remember, when you give yourself sometimes the the agency to push yourself, you don't need yeah. to feel like you're calling yourself out. You're not beating yourself up. You're calling yourself forward. And I love that line. That's a very powerful line. But I'm not calling you out. I'm calling you forward. Just like my high school basketball coach would always yell at me, Chitwood, I wouldn't be yelling if I didn't care. <laughs> 
Oh my God. I could hear that on repeat all day long. <laughs> Shout out Coach Kille. That's yeah. so true. That's what mentors, that's mm-hmm. what mentors do. That's what mentors do. They call you forward and they are there to bring things to your attention for you to see so that you can just get better. It is not to make you feel bad. It is not so that they can take your job. There's, Mm -hmm. it's just to help you get better. And what a total gift. I know we talked a lot about this, this idea of giving feedback, how hard that is. Um, But yeah, your people are just there to like help call you forward and help you continue to be the best version of yourself. Whether that means hugging your inner critic, which is dragging you down or giving you a hand. I mean, they can applaud or help you out. Love that. So that dovetails into our next episode, which will be on three mentoring tips for new grads searching for a mentor, specifically in the job search. Julie and I are having a lot of conversations around that subject these days, but a great way for you as both a mentee and a mentor is to look at the other person first subjectively and secondly with compassion. So practice that inner mantra that Jason talked about. If you can look at yourself objectively and provide compassion to yourself, you'll be able to do the same to others. And that look objectively does not mean you objectify. We're just talking about doing it, you know, without, without, without opinion, just the just the real feedback, which is the greatest gift that anybody can give. So if you can give yourself real feedback, you're in a very special place. Rarefied air. Yeah, just the facts. Just the facts. The, does the data support? That's always a question. What's the data? What's the actual data? Not like what's the stories you made up about it or what's your beliefs about it? What are the actual facts? What is the data? Is it true that you need to look like Crystal Carrington <laughs> to get a good job? No. Not factual. I love that. I love that. And this brings us to really our whole principle of this was just consistency. And I think that consistency mm-hmm. and showing up, helping call call your mentees forward and showing up in those relationships and consistency in actually, you know, giving a hug to that inner monologue and letting it go and just doing that over and over again. Don't let it get the best of you. That's what you need. Amen to that. This was fun, Jimmy. We're not going out, Julie. We're going forward. I'm always calling you forward. <laughs> Augmenters out. Wow, you've made it this far and we thank you. Hopefully you enjoyed our episode and discovered new ways to bring more authentic connection into your mentoring relationships. Want to tell them more, Jimmy? Be an Augmenter with us. Visit our website for the best interactive mentoring content at augmenters.us. Share our podcast with someone you care about. Like and subscribe. And yes, really, you following our show and writing a review, it's a big deal. Your actions provide us with the resources to continue our undefeated, unencumbered, prize-winning productions. We welcome questions and suggestions via email, hi at augmenters.us, or on social with our handle at augmentershq. We are most active and available on LinkedIn and YouTube. Shout out and earnest thank you to our intrepid producer, Erlen Cato. We appreciate you. Augmenters out. See ya. 